International tensions are high. Russian meddling in past, current, and future elections is a serious cause for concern. Angry and divisive rhetoric, trade wars, and America's place in the world are straining relationships with allies, friends, and foes around the world. Many wonder if American diplomacy abroad is dead. Deseret News in-depth editor Jesse Hyde provides insight and perspective from his time in Russia with U.S. Ambassador to Russia John Huntsman Jr., who may well be the last diplomat. All this on this week's episode of Therefore What. Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What. In the midst of all of the political things going on, all the international brouhaha's that are out there, uh, we're very excited today to be joined by Jesse Hyde from the Deseret News. And uh, Jesse, you've had a, a really interesting perch uh, to look at some very interesting things as it relates to uh, U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Huntsman Jr. Uh, you just released a, a powerful in-depth piece uh, on what may be the last diplomat. Uh, give us a little backstory. How did this all come about? Absolutely. So uh, when Ambassador Huntsman was first appointed, Pointed. I happen to be reading a book called In the Garden of Beasts by a journalist uh, named Eric Larson. And this book uh, talks about the ambassador to Germany right before World War II, so during the rise of Hitler. Uh, so in no way am I comparing uh, you know, the era we're in to pre-World War II or President Vladimir Putin to Hitler. But but it kind of gave me this idea of like how fascinating it would be to be in a place uh, that is at the center of the news and potentially is a very historic. We are in a very historic moment. I mean, regardless of what we eventually find out about, you know, ties between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin or, you know, lack of any substantial ties. Regardless, it's a really interesting moment in time. And so I thought, what would it be like to be that guy in the middle? And what does he know about all of these things that as Americans, uh, I think regardless of your political views, there, there's some level of question, you know, what what is the relationship? So that was kind of the germ of the idea. Uh, and then I reached out to him and kind of periodically hassled him, you know, can we meet? And eventually he agreed. That's excellent. Yeah. And uh, what an opportunity to go over to Russia. Uh, we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. I think the one thing on everybody's mind and really where you begin your your piece is with uh, Helsinki, the colliding universes of Trump and Putin uh, and the U.S. interests there. Tell us how that played out. What was the uh, ambassador's view of, of all of that playing out in front of him? Yeah. So he was actually sitting on the front row. For those who don't recall, this was the first official meeting. There had been, I think they're called policides mm -hmm. between uh, President Trump and, and President Putin. But this was the first time that they were officially meeting. And yeah, Ambassador Huntsman was, was sitting there on the front row. He was careful about, you know, I asked him, how did you feel in this moment that, that really became a huge headlines here in the United States in that, if you recall, there was a moment when a reporter asked President Trump, he said, you know, President Putin has, has said there has been no election meddling. With the whole world watching, you know, who do you side with, uh, President Putin or U.S. intelligence? And, you know, his answer was it, – it's hard to explain exactly what his answer was without reading it, but it was sort of this rambling answer where many people interpreted it as if he had kind of thrown America under the bus. In fact, those were almost the words that Ambassador Huntsman's daughter, Abby, who I think at the time she was on Fox News. Right. Now she's a host of The View. Uh, she said, you know, that he had thrown America under the bus. Yeah. John, the late Senator John McCain uh, said that he had abjected, abased himself before a tyrant. 
uh, and and many of the the biggest names in, across the aisle, whether it was Chuck Schumer or or Ben Sass, they were very you know they kind of came down on a t- like a ton of bricks on President Trump. And so yeah, I wondered what was that like to be the ambassador? You're in you're in these meetings behind closed doors, and suddenly you're on the front row and you hear this. He was very careful. He actually he wouldn't tell me what he, what went through his mind. Yeah. But there's a picture, and I wrote about this that was that captured that moment. A uh, New York Times photographer took it, and you know you see Sen- you see Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He's like got his head to the side. He's kind of closing his eyes, scratching his head, like, "Oh man." White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. He's he's a very inscrutable person. It's mm-hmm. hard to ever read him. Uh, so who knows what he was thinking? And then there's Ambassador Huntsman, who you know his shoulders are kind of slumped forward, his chin is tucked, his eyes are closed, and so I don't know what exactly is going through his mind, but. Mary Kay, his wife, said she was watching the press conference from their residence in Moscow. It's called Spasso House. Right. And she said, I immediately knew, like, uh uh-oh, there's going to be a lot of fallout from this. And a lot of it's going to fall in John's lap. So, so as you as you got over there, I'm really interested for our, our listeners to get the perspective of, of what it felt like over there. You captured a lot of this in the article, which was great. Um, but peel back the curtain a little bit. What did it feel like knowing, uh, I think at one point you mentioned that uh, that John Huntsman Jr. is probably the most spied on man on the planet between <laughs> what the Russians are doing and, and what the U.S. intelligence folks are doing. But what was the feel there as you went around the embassy, as you, you had kind of that day-to-day look at what his world is like. So I was born in, in 1976, you know, so when I'm a kid, it's like Rocky Four was a big movie, right? So like I'm a cold end of Cold War kind of kid. And so that was still kind of in the back of my mind. You hear so much about Putin. And I had had friends who had gone there, say, 20 years ago. And all I can say is the country must have changed. Well, it has changed dramatically in the last 20 mm-hmm. years in that unless they're really, really sneaky and maybe they are, no one was following me. I'm not that important. Uh, and so I, I didn't feel any level of surveillance. Yeah. That said, Ambassador Huntsman, like you said, he, you know, he may be one of the most spied on, he probably is, in the world, in that he said that, and it's in the article, this surveillance feels like a straitjacket almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told this great story that for like 10, 15 years, there was a seal of the United States in the family room of the Spasso House. So this is an area that only the family of the ambassador can even enter. And it was given to the ambassador by Russian school children. And finally, when the U.S. had uh, the technology to sweep the room for bugs, they found in the eye of the eagle a camera. Wow. It was either a camera or listening device. But either way, it was like in his residence, you know, the ambassadors had been spied on for 10 years. So, uh, you know, Ambassador Huntsman kind of chuckled about that. But what isn't quite as funny and is actually psychologically, it's tough. They call yeah. it a, a hardship post. And part of that is, he said, you know, you'll have people at the next table who, who make you know they're there. Uh, you'll have people who are following you who want you to know that, that there will be things left in your home so you know that someone has been there. Uh, and so, yeah, the level of surveillance. And so he was very, very careful careful about what he said in that he knew everything he said was being listened to. In fact, uh, he said that when his father called him, the late John Huntsman Sr. who died in February, he called one day and he said, I'm done. He said, I'm going to hospice. And Ambassador Huntsman tried to convince him to delay that because he knew that once he went to hospice, you know, a form of cancer that uh, John Sr. had had for years had returned. And so he just knew it was he was he only yeah. had a short time left. But he said it was so hard because I couldn't have the conversation I wanted to have with my dad. Mm. There's certain things I wouldn't say because I knew people were listening. And, and it was just sort of heart wrenching because he flew back as soon as he could. And he's driving up Foothill Drive and his brothers are there around his father's bed. Uh, and, and they say, you're, you're going to make it here in time. Ten minutes before he gets there, they call and they say, dad just passed. 
And so he never got to have that final conversation wow. he'd want to have with his father, who he said wasn't just a dad. He was my best friend. Yeah. Let's, let's drill down on that just a little bit. Uh, obviously, uh, John Huntsman Sr. was a, a giant of a man in, in every way in terms of his business prowess, his philanthropic activities, uh, a real force in the community and in the, and in the world. Uh, and, and to have that kind of ending with, with no kind of closure moment or, or opportunity to, to say last goodbyes, um, but maybe talk for a minute about what you learned in terms of their relationship. Uh, obviously, one that uh, spanned their businesses and their their other activities. Uh, but there was also a connection there in terms of kind of the political side in terms of father and son. What did you learn about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as part of my research for this profile, I read John Huntsman Sr.'s book, From Barefoot to Billionaire. And every time he writes about John Jr., his oldest son, you can just feel how proud he was of him and how much he loved him. John Senior was was involved in politics. He worked in the in you probably know this better than I do, but I, I believe he worked in the Nixon White House, if I remember correctly. And so so he always really, I, I wouldn't say he pushed John Jr. in that direction, because I don't think John Jr. would characterize it that way. John Jr. had a, a natural interest in public service and also in international affairs. From I mean, he studied that at Penn, where his father also went to school. Uh, and so for, at the age of 32, you know, he was an ambassador to Singapore. But for sure, his father was, I think, very proud and, and saw that that's an area his son wanted to go in. And certainly encouraged him to do so. And I think when he ran for president, he writes about this in his book, From Barefoot to Billionaire, how proud he was when his son announced his candidacy. Uh, I think the Statue of Liberty Statue was of the Liberty, yeah. yeah, it was where Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So for sure, uh, you know, shared interest there, and I think a lot of pride in, in in John Jr. Both as a candidate for president, also as a governor here for two terms. Yeah, obviously had a had a great impact here on the the state of Utah. Let's stay on this political vein for a minute. Obviously, there's still speculation about his political future. What's what's next? Many people, I'm I'm one of them who thinks he's uh, an extraordinary statesman and diplomat, and the politics was always the harder. Uh, part of the program for him. Uh, so curious if you got any inklings in terms of, of future uh, and how does that play in the context? He he had this uh, moment where he was, you know, becoming ambassador to China for, for President Obama uh, and now ambassador to Russia for Donald Trump. That's about as far on, across the political spectrum as, as anybody can go. How does that all play in? Does he does he still have another race in him or is this service to country uh, going to be kind of the capstone? Yeah, great question. And you can't help but wonder about that when you spend time with him. I mean, if you're with him for 10 minutes, you think, this guy could be the president. This guy should be the president. I mean, part of it is he looks, you know, like <laughs> he's right he, out of central casting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but also just like the the experience. I mean, to be a two-term governor, uh, you know, I think he had like close to a 90% approval yeah. rating. There were so many great things about his, his tenure here. Then to be an ambassador for Singapore, China, Russia, you know, talk about experience that would fit the job. Uh, in terms of whether he would has another run in him, he says, I can't imagine. And I think part of that is when he was first kind of seen as this rising star. And you can go back to 2009. There were there were reporters from New York flying out here profiling him because he was seen as a likely Republican, you know, front runner yeah. to challenge Obama uh, in the re-election. Uh, and so so people have always thought this, you know, this guy could be the president, but I think like you said, and he says this too that his political instincts, he can't he says I don't I don't have it in me to like go after somebody, to attack somebody. 
Um, I talked to Fred Davis, a Republican ad man who did the the campaign, the national campaign for Huntsman. And he said, it's not that he doesn't have it in him to be a president or to run for president. He just doesn't have it in him for this era right now. And I think that's a little, that's kind of the tragedy of it is you see a guy who's very measured, who's careful, who's well-educated, who's classy, decent, all of that. But we live in this era where, you know, ask Mary Kay, why couldn't your pre- husband be president? She said, he's not crazy enough. <laughs> uh, John Jr. was more diplomatic. Yeah. But he basically said, we live in a time when you have to be an entertainer to be the president. And to his own admission, he wasn't willing to go that route when he ran. Yeah. Like I said, he, he didn't want to talk over people, didn't want to attack them. So who knows? You know, I think the country would have to change quite dramatically for everything to be in place for him to run and be the right candidate. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of an indictment on the, the process and where yeah. we are that uh, that good women and good men, you know, aren't going to step up for that very for that very reason. Um, I think it's also interesting, uh, you know, I used to always ask candidates uh, who would come in, you know, wanting an endorsement or whatever. My my question was always, what would this person do? How would they make a difference in the world if they didn't win this job? Uh, and I think John Husband is one of those rare folks who you could say, well, he's got business and philanthropic activities. And uh, because my feeling is always, if the office you're running for is going to be the best job you ever have, then every moment you're awake, you're going to be working on holding on to that as long as possible, which makes it impossible to show real courage, real political Mm. courage in particular. Mm. Uh, I know there's been some interesting speculation around uh, Huntsman uh, in terms of the anonymous op-ed to the New York Times uh, and some of the other rumblings within the the cabinet. Any perspective there in terms of not just, you know, involved, not involved, but just how does that how does that weigh on him? and, And what do you think he thinks about all of this drama and craziness? Uh, around the highest offices in the land. Yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier, I think country first is how you put it. And I believe that was his campaign slogan when he ran for president. Mm -hmm. It sounds so corny and so cliche. And I think all of us, especially as journalists, we're sort of trained to view everyone skeptically, but especially politicians. So someone says that and you think, yeah, right. You want to be the president. You would do whatever it takes to be the president. But if you spend time with John Huntsman Jr. And you talk to people who know him really well. And I think actually, if you look at his life, a, a case can be made that when he says country first, he really, really means. It. I mean, you said, here's a guy who was the ambassador to China. When he accepted that, John Weaver, who would become his campaign chair, said to J- then John McCain, who was running for president, right. is this guy crazy? This is going to kill him politically. John Jr. joked with me and said, maybe it did. Now, to your point, he accepts the ambassadorship to Russia under Donald Trump, who couldn't be more different than Barack Obama, which for a different set of people, but perhaps just as big, would disqualify him for another run, right? Right. So my conclusion was these aren't political calculations for him. Mm. They really are. The president asked me to serve, and I'm going to do it. And he would bring up his boys a lot. He has yeah. two sons who are active duty Navy, and they went to the Naval Academy, which is so hard to even get in and then to stay. One of them flies F-18s, lands them on aircraft carriers. So that's like the top 1% of the Navy, right? Yeah. For a guy with the net worth he has, the options he has to have his son serve in the military, I really think he's putting his money where his mouth is. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a campaign slogan. So in terms of what's written about uh, with the the White House, the the reported dysfunction, I mean, he's adamant he didn't write the anonymous op-ed. I think in some ways the speculation that he wrote it, though, is, is kind of a compliment 
to how he's viewed in that people see him as a very honorable person, as someone who really would put country first. And part of it is just they're trying to reconcile this ideological moderate guy. You know, he was no mm-hmm. labels. He was with that right, group. Right. The, the Atlantic Council. And now he's working for Trump. And there's, for some people, it's like, how does that make sense? But I think the answer is it's, it's the country first idea. Yeah. It's such an interesting contrast between the feeling, uh, that kind of feeling of country first. And I know that he and Mary Kay, you know, in, in their conversations about their boys uh, who are in harm's way every day. Yeah. Um, and that kind of country first versus America first, mm. a very nationalist uh, mm. rhetoric that's coming from the president. Uh, what is that tension feel like? That's a great that's a great question. John Jr. would joke about his Fillmore roots. You know, that's his dad's side yeah. of the family. Yeah. And how he had some uncles uh, who served in the Navy. And he actually said, you know, these guys were very nationalistic. And he's certainly not. He's he's a guy who's lived all over the world. I think when he was elected governor, uh, he knew he had been at 82 countries or something. Right, right. Didn't know where Springville was, but it had been 82 <laughs> countries. <laughs> uh but but yeah, I mean, he's a guy who it's interesting because he'll talk about the American experience or experiment. And he'll talk about Tocqueville uh, mm-hmm. or Rousseau. Yeah. And those ideas are still in his mind in that the way he'll put it is we try out a lot of different things and we see what works. And that's kind of the strength of our democracy is that it's not that we're better as a people. But what's really remarkable about our country is how resilient these systems are how resilient our democracy is. His caveat, though, and what he, what he worries about now is this loss of civility mm-hmm. and a loss of respect for democracy. And, and, you know, what he means by that is, and he said this a couple times to me, we're in an era where some people have decided we're going to spend the next four years trying to tear somebody down. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, this is my country. So this goes back to your question of country yeah. first. And how can I help this person? How can I uh, make America, uh, you know, as great as it can be? I almost said make America great again. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he sees it that way of like, this is my country. How can I serve it? And, you know, regardless of whether you're happy with the election or not, this is, this is how democracy works. This is who our president is. And so I think his view is, I'm going to serve our president. And, you know, he's proven it, whether it's Barack Obama, whether it's Donald Trump. So as you, as you interacted and had conversations with uh, Ambassador Huntsman, looking at the, the global stage, not just Russia, but kind of the broader piece, uh, so many of those relationships uh, in NATO and the UN uh, and other key allies are around the world, there, there seems to be that tension and that fraying. And a lot of it is based on the, the rhetoric. Did he share any additional insights in terms of how the rhetoric coming out of uh, the White House is impacting things, not just in Russia, but uh, across the world? That's a really good question. I, I wish I would have asked him that. What he did say specifically about NATO, and I, I wrote about this a little bit in the piece, is that immediately after the Helsinki summit, he was dispatched by the Secretary of State to go to Brussels and meet with the 28 other NATO ambassadors who had concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had concerns about what they heard at the press conference, but they also had concerns about things they had heard were spoken about in private. Now, that isn't to say those things were actually said. You know, a lot of this is rumors, but, you know, he said, and I, I don't want to misquote because I don't have my notes in front of me, whether it was Germany or a small, you know, other nation that's part of the NATO alliance. But, you know, they needed reassurance that the NATO alliance was strong. And I do think part of that probably does have to do with, I think it had just been, I don't know if it had been a week before or two two weeks before when Trump had met with NATO and said a lot of things that worried members of that alliance. And I think, you know, the complicating factor there is that for obvious reasons, Vladimir Putin doesn't like the NATO alliance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there have been these aggressions with Crimea and, you know, Estonia is worried about, you know, he's got his eyes on them. And 
Um, and so I, for me, I think having John Huntsman there, uh, you know, as a journalist, you're always trying to kind of hold back what you think. I'll say this. I am glad that he is the ambassador to Russia. Um, I think he's very well suited for that job. And just as an American, if I step back and take off my journalist hat, I'm glad he's there. Yeah. What was most surprising to you uh, as you spent time with him, spent time with the family? Uh, anything jump out as, uh, wow, I, I wouldn't have expected that out of John Huntsman Jr.? To be honest with you, the most surprising thing to me is I just came into it trying to be as open-minded as I could. But like I said, there's that skepticism. And I don't think journalists are the only ones who have it. I think all of us, I shouldn't say all of us, but as Americans, it's so hard not to be jaded about our politicians and to think, you know, they're opportunists, they'll do whatever it takes to become president. And so it was hard for me to believe this country first thing. So when I was with them, I'm constantly thinking, what's the play here? You know, I mean, ambassador, to, you want to be secretary. What's next? What's next? Yeah, yeah. And eventually you want to be the president, right? But eventually I thought, you know, instead of being so skeptical of this guy, I should take him at his word. And he, when he's saying country first, it's, it started to be the only thing that made sense. When I tried to view it through like political calculations, it didn't add up to me. And so, yeah, I mean, to be honest, that was what surprised me the most is I really do think he's in Moscow, which is not fun. He told me last year there were six hours of sunlight in December. Oh. It gets uh, very cold. You're under constant surveillance. I mean, I visited him. He was here for a medical procedure at his house up, you know, on Federal Heights. It's an amazing house. You know, you see the pool out in the back and you're like, why would you not want to stay here? Uh, and so it truly is, you know, service to the country. And I admire that. Uh, you, you mentioned him coming back for a, a medical procedure. Right. Uh, an interesting uh, change. Uh, after you'd been with him in Russia, he called you. He was back in the U.S. Uh, tell us what happened there. Yeah, so the last night I was in Russia, there was a reception at where he lives called the Spasso House. So every night it felt like there was some kind of reception and there'd be all these diplomats. Well, this one was a cello concert. There was a string quartet that had flown in from New York. So, of course, I was planning to attend. And uh, about an hour or so before the reception, they said, hey, can you come 10 minutes early? Ambassador Huntsman wants to tell you something. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what could this be? You know. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also thinking of certain things he told me that maybe he wanted to say, hey, I shouldn't have said that. There was something he told me that he said, hey, I don't want that in the story. And we'll leave that, you know, we'll honor that agreement. Uh, but he also then he said, I have cancer. And I just was like shocked because I'd spent a week with him and he had been so uh, charming and it didn't seem like he was under a tremendous amount of stress. And I think that's a tribute to, uh, you know, I guess his his skills as a diplomat and that yeah. I didn't realize what he was carrying. As it turns out, it's stage one. It's melanoma. So it's one of those things that if you catch it really early, he's probably fine. Uh, and he told me I'm going to be flying back to Utah in a week and, and get it taken care of. But, you know, what was interesting to me is right after that, there was a concert. And I'm sitting in the back and there's all these diplomats around the world. And I'm thinking about how stressful this week has been. And the, these, this cello quartet starts to play. And it's, you know, they play these mashup hits of like Lady Gaga with like Beethoven. Beethoven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and everybody's smiling and, you know, they're kind of like humming the words. And, and Huntsman is a musician. Yeah. You know, he had a prog rock band called Wizard, you know, a week or two before he had been. There's a kind of like Central Park in Moscow. It's called Gorky Park. He had got up on stage and played the keyboards with this Chicago cover band. So I'm thinking he's really going to love this. And I finally see him up in the front and he's not tapping his toe. He's not smiling. He has eyes closed. And in that moment, I thought the mask dropped. 
This is how hard this job is for him. And he lost his father and he's just been diagnosed with cancer. And he said, you know, it really puts things into perspective. What really matters when you face mortality like that. On top of that, he lost Senator John McCain, who was a really close friend. Mentor. Of political, yeah, yeah, mentor. Yeah. So I think if anything else, it just kind of put things in perspective for me about what he's been dealing with over the last year. As you talk about that relationship with uh, Senator McCain, obviously they were very close. Yeah. A um, lot of interaction there. Uh, what do you think uh, or what do you sense that he learned from John McCain or has internalized from John McCain uh, that he's now applying in a uh, in a really interesting space? You know, I, I mean, I always think of John McCain. I always think, OK, five years at the Hanoi Hilton, mm-hmm. you know, mostly in isolation. That is a very lonely space to be. Uh, I think uh, Ambassador Huntsman is in a very lonely, very isolated space, not just because he's all, all the way across the world in Russia, but in terms of what he can say, what he can do, uh, a lot of uh, alone time with thoughts. And I wonder if you sensed any connection or lessons learned from McCain that are now helping uh, Ambassador Huntsman in his role. Yeah, that's great insight. I mean, I think part of the reason why uh, Ambassador Huntsman identifies so much with John McCain, John McCain's nickname was the Maverick. And in a lot of ways, uh, Ambassador Huntsman has been a maverick or an iconoclast. You know, he dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, imagine your dad's like a billionaire, very prominent, and you drop out of high school, join a rock band. <laughs> um, and a lot of the stances, too, they took as governor uh, weren't maybe the easy. They weren't politically popular for a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, and even his endorsement of Senator McCain over Mitt Romney yeah. was uh, kind of a maverick type move. And I talked to someone who told me why he made that decision. Uh, and he said, you know, it, it was really about what was kind of best for Utah. And he worried that Senator McCain would hold it against the state mm-hmm. if he was elected and the entire state, all the political figures endorsed Mitt Romney and not John yeah. McCain. But he really also thought Senator McCain would just be a better candidate. And that was kind of a mavericky type move. So I, I think in that way, he identifies with him. But I, I hadn't thought of it the way you put it. But that's really good insight about the loneliness. Because I do think that when you don't always go with the flow and you take stances that are based on principle over politics, that is kind of a lonely place. Yeah. Um, I think losing his dad has been hard for him because he told me that that, that there's been no one to fill that void. Mm-hmm. Um, and so probably that person now, obviously, is his wife, Mary Kay. I mean, yeah. and I can only imagine that their relationship has only become stronger when, you know, you're under constant surveillance. And if you have to get into an argument that you don't want to be overheard, you literally have to walk 10 minutes over to the embassy, take the elevator up to the floor that's soundproof so you can have an honest conversation. So you can imagine how that would make you even closer. Uh, but, yeah, I'm sure it is a lonely only uh, position and feeling often. Yeah. And then that isolation, that that leadership isolation, uh, leaders usually run out of energy before they run out of opportunity. Mm. Uh, Do you you sense that Ambassador Huntsman still has some gas in the tank, some energy to continue to to fight in in what is just a a very complex three-dimensional chess uh, kind of world that he's living in? Yeah, absolutely. Even with his health scare. I mean, this is a guy who honestly, my sense was he's doing a job like that he was born to do. I mean, this is a guy that like his idea of fun would be to curl up by the fire and read like four books of Winston Churchill. Yeah. You know, (laughs) Um, and and just the way he talks about international diplomacy, you know, he's a guy who says Chile and Hamburg correctly, you know, so he just he loves learning about the world. Uh, And and he told me, he said, I love this job. He said, being governor of Utah is the best job, but this is the most fun job or something like that. 
And I, I believe that he really loves what he's doing. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in spite of it being challenging, in spite of the health challenges, he, he's got a lot of energy left in the tank for sure. Therefore, what? The last thing we do on this show is we talk about therefore what. So people have been uh, listening to this podcast. They, they've heard some really fascinating insight. And I encourage everyone to go to DeseretNews.com and, and read Jesse's piece on Ambassador Huntsman. Uh, and really, the is there are there any diplomats left in the world? Is he the last diplomat? Uh, and in this section, uh, Jesse, I'm going to I'm going to give you the therefore what. What do you hope people take away uh, from this piece and this profile on Ambassador Huntsman? Uh, what do you hope they what do you hope they do as a result of, of this uh, going through this process? You know, in many ways, Ambassador Huntsman is a throwback to a different era. Even some of his references are sort of dated, like he'll, he'll bring up Nelson Rockefeller, you know. I asked him at one point what historical figure he most admired. You oftentimes will get this answer, but he said Teddy Roosevelt. And um, I think there was this era in America, and it would be wonderful if it came back. And that was, you know, JFK had the slogan about, you know, what what you could probably say it better than I can. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ask not what, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I think in many ways, you know, when you think about a Teddy Roosevelt, a guy who came from from wealth and privilege and was a real blue blood. And for as, as flawed as even JFK may have been, when you read about his service in Vietnam and he had these back pains and again, a blue blood, prominent, wealthy family. I love that about John Huntsman. I love that he comes from a lot of money. He didn't have to make the choices he's made. He certainly didn't have to have his sons serve in the Navy. He wouldn't use the word have to. He would say it's an honor and a privilege. Therefore, what I would hope that as Americans, we, regardless of our backgrounds, whether we're wealthy, whether we we come from more humble beginnings, that we look at ourselves and we think, how can I serve my country? How can I fill that same obligation that, you know, because I have been given much, I too must give? I love that about him. And so for me, that would be my kind of therefore what thing that hopefully all of us could take away from, you know, his example of his service throughout his career, not just in Russia. Wonderful. Jesse Hyde from the Deseret News, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?